prayer before we dive into the scriptures this morning. Father God, Lord, we seek your face in all things this morning. Lord, we realize that apart from the scriptures this morning, uh, we would not know you. We would not know what you were like or your great love for us or the fact that you are the one who created the world. But because we have the scriptures in our hands this morning, Father, Lord, we do know you and we, we can love you and we can know of your great love for us. And so this morning as we uh, examine our text before us, we pray that you would be the one who would open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Psalm 119, but... Similar to last week, it'll, it'll take me a minute before we kind of dive in. So if you just want to go ahead and open it uh, so we have it, um, that'll be good. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Um, this morning we're continuing our series of called uh, Life Well Lived. Life Well Lived. And uh, if you were here last week, we, uh, we said that the goal of all of our lives should be that when we stand at the end of our days to know whether or not we have lived life well. And we defined a life well lived last week uh, as opposed to every other definition that you could possibly conceive. We defined a, a life well lived with this statement. The meaning of life is to know God and to love God and to reflect the beauty of God as we know Him in Christ. Therefore, the definition of a life well lived is one in which we know God, one in which God is loved, one in which Christ is magnified in our lives. And last week we ended the, the, the introduction to this series with the question of, well, how do we do this? How do we, how do we come to the end of our days and say whether or not your life was well lived? And this morning, we're going to look at that. The title for this morning's sermon is uh, The Bible. The source of a life well lived. The Bible, the source of a life well lived. If our aim is to make sure that we know God and love Him and magnify Christ, then friends, we cannot do that apart from the Scriptures. You see, the Christian faith is a revelatory faith. And what I mean by a revelatory faith is that it's something that has been revealed to us. You see, without the Scriptures, without the Bibles, friends, we would not know this Jesus. We would not know this loving, uh, the love of a Father who would send His Son to die for us. You see, if it wasn't for the Scriptures, we would be lost and without hope in a dark world. This is a truth that I learned very, re- very early on in my Christian faith. Uh, as, as, as some of you guys know, uh, I was saved in a small Baptist church, a uh, much smaller building than this one. Uh, we had maybe about 20 people there on a Sunday night. Uh, and, and, and as I, the, the night that I, I've shared this story before, but I was there uh, at my home uh, when a youth bus drove down the street. We lived in up a, up a holler in southern Ohio, and they, they would drive up the street and turn around, and uh, they would always honk as they drove by, and that was a sign to come on out the house and so that you can jump in. Uh, on the way back through, and, and, and so they honked that night, and I went out and told them that my brother was not home, uh, for it was my brother that they had come for. And they said, well, well you, you look like a strapping young teenager. Would you like to come with us? I said, huh, not really. 
got some video games in there. You know, I'm good. I'm good. Um, and then they said, uh, they said this. They said, well, we have pizza. I said, let me go grab my shoes. Because in southern Ohio, you just don't wear shoes. You know, Appalachia. Anyways, that night I went. I heard the gospel um, clearly preached. And the Lord did something in my heart in which uh, I'm still figuring out all the ramifications of what the Lord actually did for me that night. But one thing I learned early on in that small Baptist church was that outside of the scriptures, uh, you will fail in your Christian walk. Outside of the scriptures, you will fail in your Christian walk. And so what they taught me early on is that, that if, if we're going to do the Christian life, then to try to do it without the guide of the scriptures, well, you'll run amok of things. So my point in all of that is that the life of a life well lived is one that is, has deep saturation in the Word of God. A deep saturation in the Word of God. You see, it's the deep saturation in the Word of God in which we learn who God is. It's where we learn the story of His great love for us. It's in the, the Word of God that we find how things were created and began and how the world was designed to actually work. And it's in the Word of God that we find what went absolutely chaotic very early on but not only is deep saturation in the word of God good so that you can know God love God and magnify Christ but it fundamentally changes the way you see and interact with the world in the here and now you see a deep saturation of the word of God will affect all areas of your life you see we just simply don't believe it though so that a Christian who knows and loves God and understands the effects of sin on the world and realizes that men and women are not morally neutral creatures but are categorically enemies of God, know more of the world in a fuller sense than politicians, psychologists, and sociologists. What I'm, what I'm trying to say, dear friends, is that that you and I, if we are followers of Christ, if we are steeped in the Word of God, we actually understand more of how the world actually works. And we alone have the solution to what ails the world outside more than anyone else. More than anyone else. Does this mean that those outside the Christian faith cannot make good choices or, or not know true things about the world in which they live? Well, of, of course not. That would be ridiculous. Of course that's not what I mean. You see, I know some more loving and caring and kind people who would not in the slightest consider themselves to be followers of Christ, and yet, they are not as quick to cut down others with their words or with their gossip when compared to Christians I know. And I know very intellectually brilliant people who know the intricacies of how the world ticks and how people relate to one another and what makes people tick, but fundamentally reject the Bible as a source of truth. Well, what, what's going on here? You see, what, what's happening is what we, what we need to re-grasp as the church is that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Listen to me. All truth is God's truth. And just because people do not believe in the scriptures and do not believe in Jesus Christ does not mean that they understand nothing about the reality in which they live. It simply means that they cannot know as fully as those who believe in Christ and those who believe in the scriptures. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, hear this. Your life as a Christian, 
And as someone who wants to live a life well lived, your life must be rooted in the scriptures. It's very simple. That's that's the point. That's the whole point of my sermon this morning, by the way. To take notes, your life must be rooted in the scriptures. You see, in life, there are four areas of authoritative pillars on which we build our lives, on which you can base your life. Not only in Christianity, but in every other religion and every other worldview, there's only four categories of what you're going to believe, what you're going to, what you're going to, how you're going to live your life. There's only four categories. I'll give them to you. Number one is scripture or some other holy writing, right? So, you think of Christianity, we have the scriptures. If you think of uh, the Muslim religion, they have the Quran, right? All of these things. It's either some holy writing that is the authoritative source upon which you know all other things. That's number one. Number two is tradition. Tradition. This is simply, well, we've, we've always done it this way, right? And we, we, we often say that as, as in a bad thing, right? But there's are other really good traditions in life. I don't know. Um, like, like, like your parents probably fed you three meals a day, right? Like that's a good tradition. Like, it's just good, right? Tradition. Like, and so we say, well, um, that's just how we've always done it. It seems to be working, and so that must be what's really true in life. Number three is reason. Reason. So, so, so we look at the world in which we live, and we see uh, what this happens over here, which calls this, and therefore that's what's ultimately true in life. And so we, we use logic and reasoning to understand, well, if you touch your hand to a hot stove, you're going to get burnt. It's reason, right? And that's, that's true, right? Like, like listen, I want anyone to say, well, pastor said you can touch hot stoves and not go get burnt. That's not what I'm saying. That's, that's ridiculous. You, it's, it's reason. So number three is reason. Number four is experience. So we base our life and what we believe to be true about the world around us based upon previous experiences, right? And so we say, well, like, I remember back in the day, someone, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, someone hurt me, therefore I don't trust people because people hurt you. That's a truth claim, right? So these are the four areas. There, there are no others, by the way. These are the only four on which you can actually build um, uh, your worldview or the way in which you see the world the pillars on which you can build your life. And I gave them to you in that order because that is the order that should be most important to us as Christians. You understand what I'm saying? Like scripture by far exceeds all of your experiences with the world. I'll say it again. Your, the scriptures far exceed all truth claims compared to your experiences with the world. You see, the problem is most of us have it flipped. Thanks, Siri. The problem is most of us have this flip, don't we? You see, we, we go through life and we're like, nah, man, I, I went to church. I got hurt. Some people gossiped about me. All churches are awful. That's how most of us, if we're honest, that's how we view the world. We view it through the lens of our own experiences. And there's, there, there, there is a place for experience. Don't hear me say that. But it's far below what, where we should place scripture. So let me, let me, let's, let's just be real. Okay, in our members meeting after church, we're going to have a discussion and a vote around what we do with the parsonage, okay? Uh, and and there, uh, there, there's a couple ideas, right? It's sat empty now for close to two years. Uh, and there are, uh, there's a couple options. Number one is we sell it. Number two, we rent it. Number three, we just simply leave it open for the time being. Now, some of us are going to approach it from our experiential point of view. 
And we're to say, well, we've had pastors here in the past and they left and therefore we needed a parsonage. And so would it be wise for us to sell the parsonage and not have it? It's an experiential point of view. Or, or, or it could be classified in reason, it's, which is fiscally responsible. But ultimately, friends, if we're not starting from scriptures, then we're fundamentally lost. You see, we need to go to the scriptures and understand, well, what does the scriptures say the, uh, what we should do in our situation? You see, the, in this case, the scriptures are actually quite unclear. Should a church own a land and use it as, as, as a business or income uh, outside of the means of the church? The scriptures are not clear. And so, since scriptures aren't clear, we look at traditions. Well, the traditions are um, that for a long time, churches have used parsonage as a supplemental means to a pastor's income. And so we say, well, we've done it for a while, and there doesn't seem to be anything wrong in church history with it. And so then we look at reason, and we say, well, uh, does does it make reasonable sense to keep it or to sell it? You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a category of thought. But if we always start from experience and work our way back to the Scriptures, we'll be fundamentally turned around. I digress. So all of our lives must be rooted in the Scriptures. So my question this morning is, why do so many of us ignore them? Why do so many of us ignore them? You see, at no other time have we as human beings had more access to the Bible and yet more likely to disregard it. You see, 20% of Americans, only 20% of Americans say they've read the entire Bible at least once. And only 22% say they systematically read through a section of the Bible a little every day. And less than a third of Americans, or, or a third of Americans never read the Bible at all on their own. And the number of evangelical Protestant churches, the numbers within that specific category, are just as alarming. And so the last few weeks I've been wrestling with this question. If the scriptures are so vitally important for life and for godliness, why do so many of us ignore the easy access we have to them? I began to look at my own life, my own experiences, my own reasonings. And, and, and here's the thing, it could be any number of reasons that you and I do not read the Bibles the way in which we should. And realizing this, and realizing I didn't have the time to address all these potential issues, uh, I spent the last week having flipped this question on its head. And this is the question I began to ask myself. How does the Bible talk about itself? How does the Bible talk about itself? And three, three things this morning, and then we'll be done. Number one, the Bible is fundamentally about life, and not about rules. It's fundamentally about life and not about rules. Number two, the Bible teaches us things about God we would not have otherwise known. And number three, the Bible shows us Jesus. So number one, the Bible is about life and not about rules. Let's look at Psalm 119. If you're familiar with the Bibles at all, you know this is the longest chapter in all of Scripture. It's got a uh, total of uh, 176 verses. And we're not going to read them all, don't It'll take 25 minutes. I looked at I, I contemplated it. Um, but let me just boil something down for you before we read verse 1. Here's what I want you to understand. The writer of Psalm 119 talks over and over about how much he loves the Scriptures. 
How much he endeavors to, to keep the Scriptures, to keep and to obey all that the Lord has said. He appreciates them as expressions of the divine faithfulness and his compassion. And he longs to see deeper into them and to find their saving force fulfilled in his life. The psalm itself is an acrostic where each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has eight verses. And each verse in, each verse in that eight uh, begins with the, the, that Hebrew letter. And so therefore having 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 times eight equals 176. But that's not all that's going in on in this chapter. You see, inside each of these sections of eight verses, almost every single verse contains at least one of eight words that refer to God's word or his commandments. You have words like Torah or the law or the teaching or guidance. You have the, the word, meaning God's spoken word. You have the saying or the promises of God. You have judgments or ordinances, statutes, commands, testimonies of stipulations, orders or precepts. Inside every single section, the psalmist is looking back on what God has said with love. With love. Then the fascinating thing throughout this whole psalm, he never actually gives us any commandments. The psalmist never mentions any of the commandments in which he's referring to. He's talking about them holistically. And outside of the first three verses, the rest of the psalm is a prayer to God. Besides, I think, one, um, verse 156, maybe, where he's actually talking about his enemies. In fact, there's not a commandment in this text, but it is the guiding, teaching Lord who comes up in every single verse. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 here, real quick. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. If you were here when we did our Summer of Psalms series, we, we opened up with Psalm 1 and we, we looked at that psalm which says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. But thinking back, so he's got these, the psalm opens up and it almost sounds like the opening of the entire Psalter in which they're talking about like there's only really two ways to live, right? There's the way of the righteous, the way of those who follow Jesus, follow the scriptures, follow the commandments of God, and then those who perish. There's only two ways. And the psalm opens up and he says, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Listen, hear me. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying that the word of God is life-giving. It's life-producing. You see, he's not about just simply rule-following for the sake of rule-following. Are there rules to be followed? Yes. Yes. But not simply so that we would check a box. You see, there's rules to be followed in life because in following those rules, the Lord knows that you and I will be blessed. He knows this is the way to live. 
The reason the entirety of the longest chapter in the Bible is about how the Bible views itself is because it is the way you and I should view the Bible, but, but we don't, do we? We don't. How many of us can say, oh man, I love Leviticus. Just love it. Here's why. Here's, here, here's why. Because we don't love it. We've not been properly taught that it is the scriptures which give us life. As a nursing babe longs and loves the milk from its mothers, we ought to love and long for the milk from the scriptures. I can't read. I can't. It's 176 verses, and I know I want to get through a lot of them. So I'm just going to read uh, uh, just a, a section uh, from Psalm 119, a couple of different verses. And I want you to just listen. Just listen to the way the psalmist talks about the Word of God. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as in much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You see, the Bible loves the Bible. The scriptures look at themselves with such hope, with such anticipation, with such joy, because it is in them that we find life. And because of the one in which the Bible proclaims. You see, the Bible is not about rules, but about life. Number two, the Bible teaches us about teaches us things about God we would not have known otherwise. I do want you to look here. Look at uh, verse 137. 137. The Bible teaches us about God things we would not have otherwise known. In Psalm 119, starting in one, uh, verse 137, we'll read all eight of these verses. It says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteousness forever. And your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. You see, here the psalmist declares that the Lord is righteous. That's what he says in verse 137. He says, righteous are you, O Lord. He's saying that this, this God that he's loving, that he's serving, that he wants to, uh, to earn the favor of the love of God, he's saying that God, he's righteous. And then as, as I was reading this, I was like, well, what does it mean for the Lord to be righteous? Here's a couple things. It means he never does wrong. Never. 
He never does wrong. Listen, think of all the people you know, the myriads and myriads of people you know. All of them do wrong. (laughs) Every single one of them do wrong, but not not the Lord. That's what it means to be righteous. Number two, he he, he never acts out of rashness. (laughs) Never acts out of rashness. If you've got young kids, you know what I'm talking about here. Right, listen, I love my kids to death. Like I would, I would gladly lay down my life for my kids. But sometimes they just know the right buttons to push where you're just like, okay, that's it. You know, when I, I act out of rashness, I just I get, I get so mad. I just fly off the handle. But not God. Why? Because he's righteous. Number three, he never lies. He he never lies. Listen, there has not been one day you've not told a lie. Either to yourself or to somebody else. But not God. He never lies. Every word that he says in his scriptures is true. He never lies. Number four, he deals justly always. He deals justly always. This is important in our day and age where we're crying out for justice to be had. Our God always acts justly. Always. But that's not all. The psalmist goes on to say uh, that, that his rules are righteous, right? Look at uh, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Look what he says in verse 144. He says, uh, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I might live. You see, in these eight verses here, uh, there's this progression that uh, uh, the Lord is righteous Right, He alone is worthy, he's righteous, never tells a lie, never does anything wrong, and it progresses from the Lord to his word. So the scriptures, the Bible, are righteous forever. And it's in them that the psalmist asked there in verse 144 that he would have understanding so that he may live. Look at verse 65. Verse 65. We see that the Lord is righteous, but here in verse 65 it says this, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Listen, you are good. And do good. Teach me your statutes. Listen to me. God is good. He's good. Because you got the job you wanted? Because you prayed for it? No. It's good. It's who he is. The scriptures, you see, this is what I mean when I say the scriptures teach us things that we wouldn't otherwise know. He's good. God is always righteous, but he's always good. Always, in every circumstances of your life, God is still good. Well, what if I don't currently experience it, Pastor? He's still good. Well, what if I can't make sense of the situation and I can't reason my way to see his goodness? Listen, he's still good. What if I've been taught that perhaps sometimes he isn't good? Listen, you've been taught wrongly. He's good. You see, when I say your life needs to be rooted in the scriptures, yes, I mean that you should look at this book every day. You should pick it up. You should read it. You should memorize it. You should love it. But also, you should believe it. Regardless of whatever else in your life is telling you to believe in that moment, What it means for your life to be rooted in the scriptures means that you believe it every moment of your life. 
For the scriptures say you are good and do good. One more point I want to make here about the, the idea that the Bible teaches us things we would not have otherwise known. Look at verse 89. Verse 89. <clears throat> Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. You see, the psalmist is here declaring that God's word, the scriptures, the Bible in which you hold in your hands is firmly fixed in the heavens. The point being that our God never changes. Like He, he never changes. Some of you have changed your mind 12 times today. He never changes. Now this could be perhaps, if you're early on in the faith, this could perhaps be one of the greatest truths you need to learn and grasp and dig deep into your gut. Because what happens when we get saved? Anybody, anybody, some of you all have been saved for decades, millennia, I don't know. Some of you all have been saved a long time. But, but think back with me for a moment. What happened when you got saved? Anybody remember? It was like you were on this spiritual high. You know what I'm talking about? Ain't nobody can tell you nothing like, oh, you know, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. You didn't care. People are like, hey, stop. They're like, Jesus loves you too. You're on the spiritual high, right? And they're like, hey, man, God loves me. <laughs> God loves me. Little old me. He loves me. He lo- God, Jesus loves me, right? We're on that spiritual high. And it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. But what happens? You're walking around telling everyone Jesus loves them, and all of a sudden you look down at yourself and you notice sin in your own life. You're like, Oof. Oof. We find ourselves struggling with the flesh that remains in us, bad attitudes, tempers, addictions, lust, and we in that moment, we begin to think that perhaps God no longer loves us. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. You see, God never changes. You see, He loved you. Before the foundations of the world were laid, He loved you. What if I sin, Pastor? He, he loves you. He loves you. He doesn't change, fam. He doesn't change. Number three, the Bible shows us Jesus. Look at verse 41. Verse 41, you say, well, Pastor, this is the Old Testament. Isn't Jesus just the New Testament? So, well, Jesus was concealed in the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament scriptures were about him. All the New Testament scriptures are about him. The Old Testament flowed to him, and the New Testament flows from him. The Bible shows us Jesus in both the New and the Old Testament. Look at verse 41. He says this, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. He does something very interesting here. I'm not sure if he does it anywhere else in this text, but, I, but, but, but notice what he does here. Look at the opening. He says, He asked the Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. So he knows something about the Lord and the fact that the Lord loves him. He's got this somehow, he's got this steadfast, unchanging, unmoving, unbreakable love. And he wants it. He wants the love of the Father. But what's massively interesting here is the next line. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to to your promise. You see, what he's doing is he's equating the steadfast love of the Lord to the salvation of the Lord, which he says, you've promised this. Let it come. 
Let your steadfast love, let salvation come. And it's this promise that he picks up in verse 121. Look down there. I know, I got you flipping all over the place. Luckily, it's just one page, two pages. Verse 121. He picks up this idea of the promise of the salvation of the Lord. Here again, he says this in verse 121. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let, no, let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You see, the psalmist is longing for salvation here. He's longing for this salvation. He, he realizes that the Lord has somehow promised something here, His righteous promise, and He longs for the fulfillment of it, which includes His salvation. Finally, let's look at the last, uh, last section of this entire chapter. Look at verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understandings according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You see here at the end, the entire psalm where he's on and on and on talking about his love, his delight for the Lord. What's he do in verse 176? What's he do? He says, says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. And yet, in verse 174, he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord. You see, Psalm 119 reminds us that we are all on our way to somewhere. One way or the other, every morning we wake up and our feet take us somewhere. Jesus reminds us that the path is difficult and small that leads in the direction of life. Psalm 119 reminds us that our path is illuminated by God's words. That's why we sang this morning, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? The, the psalm reminds us the way of life, the way of following Christ is hard. But we can see it clearly in God's Word. You see, this points us to Jesus. In this psalm, there's three roads. There's God's road in verse 3, there's the psalmist road in verse 5, and there's false roads in verse 29. The psalmist reminds us that he is torn between the false way and the way of God. Surely, you and I can read that and be like, yeah, I get it. It's tough. We can sympathize this. We feel that, that, that the pool between killing our sin and living for Christ We're just giving in and doing the easy thing and sinning. But notice what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying that the law of God, the commandments of God, the way in which God wants us to walk is the way to life. And you might be thinking, isn't Jesus the way, Pastor? J.F. Fesco is a seminary professor. He says this. He said, the law... Its normative use is not the actual road upon which we travel, but the guardrails on either side of the road. The road on which we travel is Christ. Like guardrails, the law shows us where the path of righteousness lies and keeps us traveling on it. You see, friends, we should love the Old Testament. We should love 
the New Testament. We should love all the commandments and rules on which God has said, this is how you should live. Because we know that the word that this psalm refers to is Christ. Christ who is the way in which we walk. Christ is the one who gives us his righteousness as a new creation, as a new person. One of the ways we see Christ in this psalm is that he is the word. He is the sinless Savior who perfectly loved and kept God's law for us. You see, Jesus would not say at the end of this verse, the end of this chapter, 176, that I have went astray, for Jesus never went astray. The law shows us what it looks like to conform to this Jesus. The guardrails of the law show us the edges of the way which is Christ, who perfectly kept the law. You see, when we see the way of God in Psalm 118, we know that we are seeing Christ concealed in the Old Testament. He kept the law. He did not stray like the psalmist. And Jesus loved the word of God. As Christians, we follow him. Therefore, we should love the word of God. That's, my, that's, the, that's the whole point of the whole sermon. We should love this book. You say, well, I don't, Pastor. I think I, I love Jesus but for some reason, I just don't feel the draw to the, of the book. And I, here's, here's, my, here's, my, here's the takeaway. You can take this home and, and chew on it. Read it anyway. Read it anyway. Listen, and, and be honest with God in prayer. We're going to look at prayer next week. But be honest with God as you're reading, as you're praying, Lord, I don't understand this. Help me see. I don't have a love for the Lord the way the Scriptures seem to say that I should have a love for the Word. So give me the love for the Word. Be honest with God on where you're at and ask Him to change you. We should read this book every day. We should love it. We should grow to love it. Because it's the way of life. It teaches us about God. Listen, how else will you know Him? Think about it. Outside of the Scriptures, how else will you know Him? Well, you say, well, i got some really good Christian neighbors. They really seem to love the Lord and follow the Lord. I'm going to go be like them. Yes, do that. But also read the book on which they're reading. How we cut ourselves off to the lifeline which God has given us when we neglect the Scriptures. And we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. Read this book. Love this book. and Let it change you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Scriptures. For those who do not have a love for this book, this word, this life-giving, if all they see when they open the Scriptures is rule, 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 and not life, 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 Father, I pray you change their hearts. Jesus loved this book. Memorized it. Quoted it. Defeated the, the devil with it, Father. I pray that you would give us a love like that for this book. Would all of us want to live a life well-lived. And without the source of the scriptures, Father, we will utterly fail. Utterly fail. So pray you give us a love for this book. May we read it. May we memorize it. May we do all the things that we can do to help learn it, to keep our focus in a, in a focusless world, Father, where everything around us takes two seconds. Lord, may we spend 20 minutes in the scriptures. May we slow down. May we read it. May we comprehend it. May we ask questions of it. May we pray it. Lord, we need your help in this. If we're going to be a, a Christian 
in all the sense of that word, if we're going to be those who follow you, if we're going to be a church and a community of believers who, who love you, then we must be shaped and changed by this book. I pray you help us with it. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.